morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you might be. I am Nicole BC. You know everything, and you are listening to the Quantum Business Book Club. Now, it has been a minute. I'm going to say three months since our last episode. And before I get into all of my excuses and apologies, let me just bring the new viewer and listener up to speed. I am obsessed with reading. It is one of my most favorite pastimes. If I could effectively hike and read at the same time, I would be in heaven, but I can barely hike without falling into a river, which might have happened on the weekend. So probably shouldn't be doing that and reading at the same time, but I have always escaped through books. Watching stuff doesn't really do it for me. I never really got into like online gaming. I appreciate these are all various forms of distraction and they titillate different parts of our brain, but ultimately you do you, boo. Follow your bliss. Do what makes you happy. For me, it's reading. And the reason I called this the Quantum Business Book Club is because like the theory of quantum physics, I experience time travel. I experience loss of physicality and this instantaneous ability to transform my experience, my knowledge, my ideas, my hopes, my fantasies. It's like this, this opportunity to sit down with the brightest, most creative people and have a conversation with them. Now, granted, that's all happening in my mind, <laughs> so I might just be crazy. But I wanted to share my favorite writers, creatives, philosophers, and ins inspirados, people who truly inspire me and challenge me to be better. So the first season of the Quantum Business Book Club was very diligently and disciplined it came out once a month, every month. It was all of my favorite books. I cheated because I had read them before. Now I did my best to provide really thorough notes where supportive, sometimes I doubled up when I found like two books made better, made more sense in one episode. Sometimes I split things into parts because books were so amazingly impactful in my own business and lives and the businesses and lives of my clients. This season has been off to a rocky start. So we were right on track until the second book. And just for the record, the Discord community voted for these books. You are more than welcome to join. I would love to see you in there. It is absolutely free. I will be doing these live when I get back on track. Here's the excuses component. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Lots of personal stuff happened. There was a death, a fairly significant one. There was full-time caretaking going on before that. And I just totally underestimated some of these reads. The first one was Joseph Campbell's um, Hero of the Thousand Faces. Uh, I did not realize it was a tome. Most of the time I get books on my Kindle, so I didn't know that I was looking at a thousand page book. And it was wildly in depth. I didn't realize I would be reading a thousand folk stories, you know, kind of cut into bits and layered throughout to demonstrate the, I think it's something like 27 steps in the hero's journey. I also found myself going down a rabbit hole in terms of the symbolism. And that was my main takeaway are how symbols become the storytellers. And fascinatingly, symbols across the globe, symbols across cultures and symbols across time have been shared without anyone ever actually sitting down and going, okay, so in your <laughs> uh, religious um, origin story, are you going to talk about the sun and the moon? Like, no, that just happened. And 
it's probably for very obvious reasons, but I also think that it is a testament to the collective mind and the greater groove in the sky where all of the ideas are just kind of floating around. It doesn't surprise me at all when we see thousands of years separating a very similar origin story, right? And a culture telling the same story. I'm obviously off on a tangent. I'm going to get back to this particular episode. So the hero's journey was just a big read. And although I was incredibly here for it, it just took me a little bit longer. So I started to get off track and then things went off the rails in my own personal life. The rational optimist really challenged me. And I'm going to do my best to summarize this complex series of data analysis. It is incredibly well-timed. And thank you to my Discord community for voting for this one, especially at this time. What I think is really interesting, although not surprising, because this is how these things always work. Matt Ridley, who wrote The Rational Optimist, published the book in 2010, meaning he researched it and wrote it just after the last financial crisis. And I use air quotes because <laughs> I think compared to what might be coming next, crisis uh, will be a euphemism, but I digress. And also that's kind of the point. If you can find the optimism, even in an incredibly pessimistic landscape, you're, you're going to have a much different experience. I used to be a hardcore pessimist. I was proud of my pessimism. I wore it on my shoulder like a badge of honor. I wanted everybody to know, and believe me, they did you. Believe me, you, they did, my friend, because you know what? You know what's pretty obvious is a grumpy, critical, complaining pessimist. You know what else that pessimist uh, obviously receives is a world, an experience, a day-to-day -day that is full of problems and very worth complaining about. I was challenged and uh, I was um, invited to be a part of a very intimate group when I was still living in Australia. The government had identified a handful of leaders in the creative industries, and they wanted to create almost like a focus group because the government is very invested in the arts and in the creative industries in Australia. So they wanted to pull people from various parts of the sector, bring them together, and really um, brainstorm, kind of mind map businesses, business planning, marketing planning, and how the government could come into alignment with some of the most successful uh, creative entrepreneurs in Australia. And one of the speakers, one of the presenters at this event was an organizational psychologist and, and really was sort of the early like executive coach. And so this person had worked with executives from all around the world, typically in creative businesses. So record label, movie producers, um, product creators, people who had global, global businesses. And we went on a walk one morning and I was explaining to him that I was raised to be a pessimist. You know, my father had experienced some of the worst in this modern day world. And, you know, I was taught like one of the, the um, I call them mantras now, but my father used to bestow these phrases on us, uh, I think for like muscle memory. Um, but they became like these paradigms that kind of dominated my worldview, one of which being expect the worst, then you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's a pretty pessimistic outlook, right? And I believed and had proven to myself, funny how that works, right? When we have a belief, we tend to prove it to ourselves over and over again. But so I had, I had believed that if I looked at the worst case outcome in every single business strategy, any single negotiation, any product launch or marketing plan, like 
as long as I had a, a plan for the worst thing that could happen or every contingency plan, I would spend weeks going through every single worst case scenario. Meanwhile, I'm not actually doing the damn thing, right? I'm just planning and, and planning on the worst thing. Guess what would happen? Now, I think risk mitigation is a really, really responsible thing to do. And what that's the point being, the psychologist said, you know, BZ, pessimism is just about as useful as optimism. You know, I had probably gone on some tirade about how the love and lighters are ridiculous and people just take advantage of others and blah, 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 blah. I had a very, very different world outlook. That would have been about 20, 20 years ago on the nose. Yes, 2006-ish time. Am I right? So uh, he, he basically showed me like a bar graph, like 10% are going to fall into this worst case scenario. 10% is going to fall into this absolute best case, complete outlier amazingness. The rest is going to fall in the middle where we like to refer to, or what we like to refer to as realists. The difference is, sure, the pessimists might be a little bit more prepared for some of the bad things that are going to happen, but they're exhausted, they're pissy, they're judgmental, no one wants to hang out with them, right? Like, uh, you know, I used to joke around about, um, oh, I'm the asshole. And at that time, I really, really was. Now, the challenge is, is that pessimism sells and every headline you click on, every title chat GPT tells me to use for these videos and these episodes is fear mongering. It's worst case scenarios. It's catastrophizing. We are innately attracted to bad things because when our brains first developed, it's how we survived. But we've evolved, my friends. And that's really what the rational optimist is about, is firstly, it challenges pessimism. It is hundreds of pages of data, data supporting an optimistic outlook. Here was my problem with this and why this has taken me, I think, three months to put together. I finished the book about six weeks ago, but it, it broke some of my own beliefs slash prejudices, slash interpretations of this world. And it's probably not an incorrect assumption that you would share a lot of my pre-existing and potentially still existing assumptions about how this world works. And <laughs> if you are left leaning, let alone, you know, sitting on the side of a mountain, consuming no carbon, <laughs> living a peaceful and ultimately uh, wholly beneficial life. Amazing. I, I, I see you. I share many, many philosophies with you. Now, if you're leaning a little to the right or perhaps, you know, driving around in some gas guzzling SUV with your gun strapped to the back of the window, I see you. I date you. I'm in love with you. Uh, and you're going to really like this, uh, this, this book. I would carry it around in your back pocket for every liberal that you have the pleasure of dining with so that you can uh, assault them, not just with your weapons, but also with a whole series of data as to why this world is actually getting better. And unfortunately for us left-leaning people, or even the ones in the middle, some of the campaigns that have been wildly pervasive not just in my own personal life and my own activism and in my own charitable 
endeavors, but that drive our government policy now might not be as capital T truthful or factual as I had certainly hoped they were. As an example, I have an Audible account and because I bought this on the Kindle, Audible will give you the audio version and my dad is like obsessed with audiobooks, So he's been listening to a lot of these books and he, he called me up after listening to this one and he was like, well, are you still a liberal? I was like, okay, look, <laughs> this isn't about politics by any means. This is really about data and information. And what I do believe is that you can find a study ChatGPT can do a whole bunch of research for you to pull together, not just an argument, but all of the data you need to defend yourself. So I, sh I say that to preface this because this was my challenge. A lot about what I'm going to present is flying in the face of everything I felt and thought for the last 40 years. <laughs> Ouch, right? Now, I'm not saying that this is, like I said, capital T truth. I'm sure there is data to present the other. So what I'm going to do, again, is not present my opinion, but present some summaries of the facts. If you are looking for proof that things are getting better and there's hope, I encourage you to read this book. I'm not going to go through all of the data just because that would be super boring. I would literally just be reading stats like 73% of the people polled in um, white suburban neighborhoods and uh, Ghanese rural communities are blah, 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 right? Like, I don't think that's why you're here. Um, mainly, I, I would assume you're here for a cheat sheet. So I'm going to summarize the data and again, encourage you to purchase this book. I would encourage you to do it on bookstore.org and support independent bookstores. I know I said Kindle and uh, Audible. I will always buy paperbacks from used bookstores and independent bookstores. So um, anyhow, do what you need to do. Download the book, do the data, listen to, there's actually YouTube videos where Matt Ridley takes you through every single chapter of this book. I think there's about 15 different chapters. And he basically starts with the inception of like humankind. Um, Matt Ridley is, has been a, he's a, he's a doctorate in philosophy. He has been writing about science probably since longer than you've been alive. I think he started writing for, I want to say the, he's been writing for the economist about science since 1984. He's also written for the daily telegraph, the Sunday telegraph, the wall street journal, the times BBC. He has written tons of different books. The one that I was familiar with was genome which obviously goes through the human genome. But I mean, this guy has been writing about science for lifetimes at this point. And he, he wanted to go through the data suggesting that essentially we're still here, which means we're doing something right. So what I found really interesting is I think a lot about exchange. And as you know, I'm kind of obsessed with Web3, cryptocurrencies, um, even these CBDCs, because it's going to change the way that we exchange with each other. As you also know, I have my own spin on business and value. And this concept of what I'm qualifying as new world business, because somebody trademarked business revolution, parentheses are revolution. And things are changing. They're changing very, very quickly. They are changing quicker than they probably ever will or have. And all of those clickbait headlines, all of the fear mongering will lead you to believe it's changing for the worse. But one of the things that data scientists do is they analyze trends. And that's what they use to predict the future. And if you look at human civilization, it's trending up. That is the premise of this book. And one of the first data points that 
Ridley presents in the sort of vein of Darwin and other evolutionary theorists and scientists is that it is the means of exchange that forwarded our evolution as humans. And so someone suggests like, you know, our brains grew and we ate more nutritious food and we, you know, stopped hunting and gathering and we started staying in shelters. Sure. Absolutely. There was definitely a biological influence on our evolution, but the impetus, the need for our brains to grow was because of exchange. And he's got a really popular TED talk, I think called When Ideas Have Sex. But it's this concept that humans stopped hunting and gathering because they could, because we started exchanging with each other. And so as humans went from solitary to tribal, and based on their own geography, they had to specialize. So obviously people living near water learned to fish. People living in the mountains learned to hunt. The tools that you needed for this were wildly different. But the fishermen needed the antlers that were being hunted by the people living in the mountains. And the people living in the mountains needed the nutrition that the fish could provide. So they could trade the antlers that just fell off of the animals for these fish. And that is actually what allowed humans to stop moving around, start specializing, and start using their brains, start solving very specific problems that were unique to their particular group. And this concept of when ideas have sex with each other means that I can come together with you. This is kind of the whole premise of the quantum business book club, right? Like I can bring my ideas to you and my skills to you. You now have access to them. You don't have to study what I've studied. You don't have to practice what I've practiced. You can simply acquire both the idea and the result of my skill by exchanging with me. That is of huge benefit. And ultimately, that exponentially expands our ability to succeed. The book covers the entire sweep of human history, from the Stone Age to the Internet. And it suggests that we are trending up. The reason that we continue to prosper and progress is because of trade and exchange, not nutrition or government or education or science or even the free market. It is literally our ability to exchange with each other, which is why I think cryptocurrency and um, Web3 are going to literally change the way that we think and engage that's a different podcast. There's lots of, there's lots of those episodes I think out there already. I think what I, another reason that I kept reading this book, even though it literally broke every philosophical soapbox I had screamed at people on from 16 until 40 is it's important. It is important to trend towards optimism, to look for the potential and the hope and especially in times like we're experiencing right now, which 13 years ago was 14, 15 years prior is what Matt wrote this book during. It, it changes the entire experience for not just you as an individual, but all of humanity. When we choose to believe this is progress, we will engage differently. When we actively work towards a more optimistic future, I believe we'll create that. If we are actively planning on a pessimistic future, things are probably going to suck. I don't like, that just seems really logical to me. I would love to hear your thoughts below um, or wherever you might be able to comment.
So despite the fact that, at least in the United States right now, inflation is at a record high, energy and food prices are steadily rising, there's layoffs all over the world, despite what the government's saying, and like AI is coming for us. What if we live in the most prosperous time that humans have ever experienced? And what if innovation will continue to push humans forward? What if there is a different side of the climate change debate? And what if the one thing we can consistently prove is that humans have achieved incredible things and they will continue to do so? When I was reading some other people's opinions on this book, this was actually while I was researching, like, how, how the heck am I going to present this? And at the um, World Science Fair at the turn of the century, they were talking about all of these crazy inventions and things that were going to change the world. But you know what wasn't a part of that? Cell phones, the internet. Do you know how many jobs, how much electricity, how much uh, efficiency, how much access has been created because of those two technologies that 100-ish, 120 years ago, we, didn't, we, we couldn't have even imagined. And so you'll hear me say often, bank on the miracle you can't plan for. Do the risk optimization. Do the business plan and the marketing plan. Put the strategies and structures in place and know that if you continue to take one step forward towards your desired destination, Something fucking awesome is going to happen that you can't even plan on. And like, yes, it's a hero's journey. There are going to be trials and tribulations. There is going to be a dark cave that you would many times think you're not going to come out the other side of, but you do. You always do. We consistently, systemically for thousands upon thousands of years have, and I can hear, I can hear all of the social justice warriors back there saying not for everybody. We'll get into some of the facts behind that, but for the vast majority, it has. And this might be the first uh, very offensive suggestion or um, question. Let's go questions again. Not my opinion, just sharing the facts here. But is it worth the majority progressing and optimizing and succeeding at the cost of a small minority? I mean, I believe we've been debating that probably for tens of thousands of years. If you're in the small minority, absolutely not. But I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I think many, many people have sacrificed their own individual experience for the greater good of all. So even the poorest society and the poorest among society today have a much higher quality of life than they did 100 years ago. So here's a direct quote. Some are worse off than they were just a few months or years before, but the vast majority of people are much better fed, much better sheltered, much better entertained, much better protected against disease, and much more likely to live to old age than their ancestors have ever been. The availability of almost everything a person could want or need has been going rapidly upwards for 200 years and erratically upwards for 10,000 years before. So he presents some different facts as well in terms of some of the more common arguments, food, climate, um, accessibility, racism, uh, gender inequality, uh, medical science, so on and so forth, right? Because we are led to believe that this stuff is systemically biased. And again, I'm not suggesting that it's not. What I, what I have personally experienced is that when I feel like this is systemically beyond my influence or impact. I don't, I don't even want to participate. 
I don't feel like there's a space for me at the table. And I am one of the most privileged people with the most amount of agency on earth. When I think about, actually, this is a system, there have been thousands before it. And that's, you know, no system is perfect. What could I do? How could I benefit one other person? How could I get involved to create some level of influence? Maybe it's just a small amount of people that, I mean, even just saying that feels wildly different. So just some random facts pulled from the book. Without fossil fuel, modern men would need 600 unpaid slaves to afford the same lifestyle. A car traveling at full speed produces less pollution today than a parked car in 1970. The death rate from natural disasters declined by 99% since 1920. In 1920, a weather-related disaster took 242 lives out of a million people. In the 2000s, it takes three lives out of a million people. Reefs will not disappear due to global warming. For warmer reefs and warmer seas, they might. But where colder seas becomes warmer, there will be new life. We've seen, even in in quote-unquote modern history, the last, uh, let's go 8,000 years, we've seen much, much warmer global climates and much, much cooler global climates. In fact, in cities alone, we've experienced temperature, on average, temperature changes of plus or minus 10 degrees. We're, we're seeing, I mean, I, when I was a child, I was told that the Great Barrier Reef was dying. And now we know it is, it is, it is growing back. And it's interesting, I think about that one, because I remember the almost desperation, the desperate need to try and go and see it before it dies. And now it kind of all just feels like a weird marketing plan. But anyhow, at the Chicago World Fair in 1983, people were asked about what innovation they think will have a big impact in the next century. And again, no one talked about even cars at that time, let alone mobile phones or the internet. Trading created collective intelligence. So this is one of the the premises of the book. Collective intelligence is the evolutional advantage that uplifted humans from other species. So Matt Ridley argues it's the sharing, swapping, and trading of things was the first step to building this collective intelligence. People value what they don't have. And here's here's what I think is especially interesting for all the finance and um, economists, all the financial people and economists out there. So evolutionary psychologists assume that it is rare that two humans would have the exact same resources that the other needs. But we don't just trade based on utility. And anyone in sales will tell you this. We trade, we, we exchange with each other based on desire because we value what we don't have. And our ancestors would trade a necklace of shells for an ax. There's no real utility outside of like decoration or uh, maybe a demonstration of wealth if that necklace of shells is recognized <laughs> as well and, and potentially therefore power and influence. Like necklace, like what's going to help you survive? Necklace or axe, right? But yet these were perceived to be of the, ex- of the same value. So trade... Again, I don't know that I believe this, but this is one of the premises of the book. Trade is beneficial for everyone because with trade, we inherit the ideas of someone who spent years perfecting their craft. Buying weapons from a hunter means buying a tool that is better to hunt than the one the gatherer could create. So that's what I was talking about before. We have like ideas making sex 
making sex ideas, having sex with each other. When, when we exchange even products, I am gaining access to essentially everything you've learned, every other relationship and connection that you've relied upon to create that product. It exponentially increases our access and therefore, well, I think the book would argue our um, success, fulfillment, potentially even happiness. So uh, trade is obviously essential for innovation. In vast continents and rarely populated areas like Africa, people made handmade tools, but they never experienced the great improvements of what made innovation possible. There wasn't an opportunity, this is obviously thousands of years ago, there wasn't an opportunity for them to trade and to share ideas and to improve through others' influences. And so he really talks a lot about what happens when you reach certain population numbers and what happens as well in recorded history when we hit uh, certain um, experiential thresholds. So as an example, the Roman Empire was built on slaves. With the advance of industry, of government, of community, we decided that that behavior wasn't okay anymore, but we needed to finance that behavior. So ultimately, how were empires created? Through the blood, sweat, and tears of humans. Spartacus and his companions built the roads of Rome and grew its food. The main energy source was slaves. So now we have economies backed by capital instead of slaves. Europe was the first place where economies became capital intensive instead of labor intensive. The capital was used to get the energy out of animals, rivers, and later from machines rather than out of people. And, and so we start to see what happens when large groups of people come together and we start to organize. Oftentimes that organization, which is then applied through government policy, is based on a value set. And Again, I'm skipping ahead, but that's what we're seeing now from the World Economic Forum, from the UN, from the World Bank, is, is the suggestion that certain values should drive policy. Again, I'm not arguing with it being right or wrong, but I'd, I'd, until this book, I hadn't really thought about that to the degree at, at which I, I have been ruminating for the last three months, because maybe some of the things that I've thought where the way humans and society should evolve are actually someone's agenda. So like as an example, wearing cotton, when cotton was first introduced, it was much cheaper than the existing, like the existing textiles of silk and wool. So Britain made cotton illegal in the 1700s. Interesting fact I use fact in terms of a, a data point that was introduced in this book. Biodiesel is worse than fossil fuel. To produce biodiesel, you need so much machinery run by fuel, fertilizers and pesticides to grow them that at the end of the day, we need as much energy to grow fuel as we can get out of it. And I'm sure you've heard this, the batteries that um, electric cars in order to simply manufacture that battery, it negates any of the carbon offset that that particular car might have. That is obviously short-term thinking for sure. But um, again, it, like 
there's data that's going to support everything. So, uh, or, or not everything, but data to support most arguments. It, this was, this just really got my mind crunching. Uh, success stops innovation. The first venture capitalist, George Doriot, it's spelled D-O-R-I-O-T. It looks like Do, Do, Do Riot. Do Riot. George's Do Riot. <laughs> said that the most dangerous moment for a company is when it succeeds because it stops innovating. Bringing others' discoveries to market. One of the things that's happened and, and can happen when you know ideas have sex is you don't need to be a scientist to innovate. It's enough to bring innovative products to market. And you can rely on recent innovations. That's exactly what Henry Ford did. Here's another controversial data set. Knowledge has, was never lost. After humans found out how to use fire, knowledge was never lost again. So another thing that Matt Ridley talks about throughout the book is the different trends simply on pessimism. What were people obsessing about and worrying about pre-1200 as opposed to 1200 to 1900? 1900 to um, 2000. Actually, it was probably more like 1900 to 1920. But the, the biggest concern in the 20th century from 1900 on is <laughs> the world will continue as is, except it never has. Pessimists often start their argument with, if the world continues as dot, 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 then we will, we only have fossil fuels for X amount of years, enough food to feed Y people, but the world won't continue as is. It never did. New sources of fuel were found and new technologies were invented to produce food more effectively. It is not realistic to count on today's benchmark because they will improve just like they have throughout history. We feed more people using less land now than we ever have before. And he's got a, he's got a whole chapter on, the, on those data sets and facts. This was also really interesting. Top-down force on a bottom-up system fails. The communist attempt to completely plan how an economy works failed because you cannot pull top-down ideas on a bottom-up system. Trade is done by people, not politicians. He, he goes much further into this argument, especially when looking at Africa, because right now so much of Africa's economic development is dependent on subsidies. You know, the big white Western world subsidizes Africa to help them. But again, the data suggests that doesn't help, it hinders, and it slows down what would be a very natural economic process, and it uses Botswana as an example. I'll leave it there. Uh, climate has always varied. Cooling and warming are both predicted as disastrous for humanity. The message goes that only keeping the present temperature is good enough for humans to live, but the present temperature has never been stagnant. In fact, it has always varied. One job in the renewable energy sector destroys two in other sectors because it is so capital intensive. Solar is the most efficient renewable energy, and it is efficient because it is less land hungry. He talks a lot about wind turbines. He talks a lot about hydroelectricity. He talks a lot about the different biofuels that are available and ultimately what it takes to both build and create those uh, machines. But, which is, again, I know, a very short-term look at it. The problem, though, is they're all dependent on weather, which is incredibly variable. And so, like, it has to be windy for wind turbines to work. Like, the water has to be both flowing and flowing at a certain speed uh, for, the, for hydroelectric power to work. And 
there is a, a strong push for nuclear power, which well, that was where I was like, oh my God, what is happening right now? This is literally going against everything that I've ever read, but I'm not an expert. I'm not a scientist. I am just as susceptible to clickbait and have always aligned myself to environmentalists and left thinking people. Um, so nuclear power has just been an absolute no-no until you do a little bit of research and you realize who benefits from that spin. The world won't continue as is. It never has. New sources of fuel have been found. New techniques have been invented to produce food more effectively. And it is not realistic to count on today's benchmark because the whole premise of this book is it will improve just like it has throughout history. I saved all of us a whole bunch of time and energy not going through every single data set, but I can tell <laughs> you are like, oh my God, what is happening? So um, I will actually link to the YouTube videos where Matt Ridley takes you through each one of these chapters. But this is like a DYOR moment. And as, as we're watching one hegemony, essentially, uh, I don't want to say step aside, but and this is, this is going to be my own personal opinion that I'm sharing here. You know, I've, I've talked a lot about this. I was raised by, by an immigrant who I, I believe is one of the last recipients of the American dream, came here with nothing, you know, the huddled, hungry masses, literally through Ellis Island, um, and was able to build an incredible, incredible, probably, I wouldn't go 1%, but maybe 10% for sure, life. And I would argue with this individual that they were it. That was they 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 punched the last ticket and got through the gate. And based on history, we see empires fall. Now that sounds incredibly dramatic. And if you're again part of the minority that might not benefit from the vast majority improving, it's not going to feel incredibly amazing. But I don't think it's going to be like a grand theft auto game out there and we're all going to be rioting in the streets, breaking into each other's homes and um, going back to like the stone age. I think it's going to be a hell of a lot interesting. And I think it's already been happening for the last 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, as we see huge trends in employment and education and um, uh, mobility and even just migration shift, we're going to evolve and this book reminded me, we've been doing that in a way that is actually beneficial to the vast majority consistently. And no matter the clickbait headlines out there, no matter the fear mongers, there is always going to be an opportunity to improve. And I've been doing a lot of research in terms of economic systems. And I'm not saying... <laughs> there aren't going to be some dramatic shifts. But what I am saying is there are ways that you can prepare yourself. And the, the manner in which you discover that is by staying hopeful and optimistic. So, you know, just as an example, no debt. Though some of you might be experiencing a heck of a lot of debt. Work on that. Diversify your assets. If you think the United States dollar is going to crash, then don't have all of your money in dollars. There's now banks that you can hold multiple currencies and you don't have to be a Forex trader. Um, you can put your money into property. Land value has only trended up. <laughs> if you're borrowing to do that, that might work for you. That might not. But 
what I'm saying is when you have a, a growth oriented mindset, when you choose, and it is a choice, it is an active daily momentary choice to be optimistic, you're going to see opportunities. When you're pessimistic, there's two, this or don't fail. Neither of those are going to be incredibly useful. There are plenty of people who are not worried at all about what's going to happen because they feel ready for it. They feel prepared. And what they uh, have used to create that security is going to be completely different than what I need and what you need. So the whole point being, by choosing optimism, you will discover opportunities for your own growth and progress. And if you need an excuse or an argument or a defense <laughs> for being optimistic, this is the book for you. So I actually really enjoyed it outside of the fact that it kind of broke my brain because it ripped the rug out from under me on a handful of what I thought were really, really cute issues that I thought I had a very, very firm stance on. So I'm, I'm literally like looking at doing data analysis courses and getting into trend analysis and data science as a result of this book, because if it's shown me anything, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it absolutely rhymes. And if I want to know where things are going, all I have to do is use 2020 hindsight. So I think that's all I got to say. Thank you. Uh, you know where to find me. Hello at Nicole BZ. I would love suggestions for books. If you want to know what the next books are, please get into the discord container. Again, it's free to join. Everyone can be in the quantum business book club channel. We're a bunch of book nerds and, uh, yeah, I do lots of other fun stuff. You can find out about what's happening at NicoleBZ.com or on any social media platform at the BZ channel, same handle as this platform that you are watching or listening to. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for, I'm especially grateful because if you, if you're still listening, that means you believe things are going to get better, which means you're going to create solutions that lend themselves to exactly that fact. So might sound a little hippy dippy woo, but together we're going to make this world a better place. So again, uh, I have, I have a lot of gratitude for you, not just because you're listening to me, <laughs> you know, get the stats up, but because it's going to take all of us actively choosing in every moment of every day, optimism, progress, and um, growth. Mm -hmm.